Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 199 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing season one of The Magicians, a new sci fi channel series based on The Magicians trilogy by Lev Grossman, who was our guest back in episode 48. And this will involve spoilers for both the books and the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by two guests. So first up, we've got Andrew Liptak, who you may remember from our panel on Killjoys and Dark Matter back in episode 167, and our panel on The Expanse back in episode 180. He's the weekend editor of Gizmodo and io9, and he also co-edited the anthology War Stories, New Military Science Fiction. His reviews have appeared in Clark's World, Kirkus, Lightspeed, and Tor.com. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And also joining us today is Melinda Snodgrass. She's the author of the Circuit series and the Edge series, and her latest novel, The High Ground, will be out in July from Titan. She's also written scripts for TV shows like The Outer Limits, Sequest DSV, and Reasonable Doubts. And her Star Trek The Next Generation script, The Measure of a Man, has been voted as one of the 10 best Star Trek scripts of all time. Together with George R.R. R. Martin, she edits the Wildcard series of Shared World Superhero Anthologies. So, Melinda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so let's start off with Andrew. So, Andrew, you've written about how the novel The Magicians really had a big impact on you. So, tell us about that. Um, I don't know it had an enormous impact, but it was it was a book that I read when I was a little bit out of college, and it was it sort of just was one of those things that struck me. Um, I identified pretty closely with some of the characters, even though they were kind of horrible, <laughs> <laughs> and um, they were just. Um, it, it's just all, it was one of those books that sort of hit at the right time, and I just really enjoyed it. And I've, I've stuck through listening to it, uh, sorry, uh, reading them as I uh, as it come out. Mm-hmm. And you sort of identified right with the, like, what am I doing with my life, and what's the point of everything? Yeah, it's a little bit of like that sort of like post college directionlessness of a of a liberal arts uh, major. Uh, I, I majored in history, and it was one of those things that you, you know you 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 major in, and you don't quite. Um, have a, a job lined up when you get out, you sort of have to make your own way. Um, so it was a couple of years after I graduated and it was just sort of, you know, well, what am I doing and what direction am I going to find? And, you know, it's, it's not exactly, you know, going off on, and doing like Indiana Jones style <laughs> trips to archives and things like that all the time, but it, it's a little bit more work. So I, I was, wouldn't say I was surprised by it, but it was just one of those things that it just, um, they just seemed to coincide nicely. Yeah. And so say a bit more, like, what did you like about the book? Well, I, I mean, it was fantasy. I, I, I sort of enjoyed it uh, for that. Um, but I, I liked the, how Grossman had set up a magical academy um, and basically did it in a slightly different direction than Harry Potter had gone. Um, it was a little bit, it felt modern. It was a little bit, what I, at least I felt a little bit more realistic and as realistic as a fantasy novel about a magical college can be. <laughs> And, um, it was just, uh, I, I liked how the story played out, um, how these, these kids basically said, well, you know, adventure's not going to find us. So let's go and sort of go to this fantasy world and, and find it. And they, and they also find that, you know, magic is really dangerous. It's not this, you know, cutesy thing that can, you know, they get to, to cast spells with, but there's really devastating consequences. Right. And you've said, right, that you think the trilogy gets better with each book. I think so. Um, I, I've only read the third book once, 
um, when it came out and I, I've read the, the first one a couple times and the, the second one a couple times. The second one I really liked. Um, but I liked that one for different reasons. I liked that one because of the structure, um, where you're balancing Quentin's story and then going back and looking at Julia's story. I liked how they both went back and forth. Uh, between them, and then they coincided right at the end. Uh, now there's some, some absolutely horrifying things in the in the second novel, but um, it was uh, I, I like I thought it was a stronger book overall. And then the third book I really liked a lot as well. It, um, it's just been a, a while since I've read it, and it, it I have to read it again at some points to get more of the details to sink in. Right, right. And so, so Andrew had a lot of kind of expectations, I guess, going into this TV show. And Melinda, you said that you watched the show first and then read the book. So kind of kind of what got you interested in the first place in watching the show? I was really impressed with the trailers. Um, I mean, sci-fi has sort of had a history of doing just awful trailers <laughs> and, uh, in the past. And this was really intriguing. And I was I was very interested. And also there's, you know, new leadership over there. And I could see they were making a big difference. So I thought, well, I'm going to tune in and just take a look at this because I had not really even heard of the books, much less read them. Started watching um, and just I fell in love with it right from the very first episode. I, I just thought this was um, fresh and modern, as Andrew said, and I, I was very excited. So after I'd about, watched about four episodes, I went ahead and got the book, uh, the first book for my iPad, and started reading. And I haven't read on past that first one. I'm told they do get better because my impression of it was that it felt more like an outline to me. Uh, then it felt like the structure was very odd and that it was rushed. I mean, I I wanted more time um, at break builds. And I was disappointed in the book that they seemed to graduate very quickly and then became aimless young people post, hmm. you know. And um, and so it was fascinating to be reading the book while I was watching the show and seeing the choices that the showrunners had made that I thought were really smart and, and just took this whole um, series up a level. And and I can't wait for it to come back. I mean, I I've just uh, been really impressed with it, really enjoyed it, and I'm I'm interested enough that I may go on and read the next two books, but I'm sort of intrigued with just not and seeing where the show takes me instead, you know, and the way they handle it. Uh, and I mean, I, I believe Lev said that he kind of was making it up as he went along, and. Uh, he thinks that he got better, right, with the second and third book. So he might not even disagree with you that the the first novel uh, could stand to be developed a little bit more. Well, it just felt like he had he was plunging into a world, and he was yes, it did feel like he was exploring it, but there just didn't feel like he was. I wanted him to slow down, and that's not usually a note. I'm I'm hmm. usually the editor on Wild Guards who's going, come on, come on, move this thing along, speed this up. This was one where I wanted to say, take a breath, take your time. Um, let me see the years that they're going to stay here uh, because I'm interested. I'm interested in the professors. Um, I'm interested in the coursework. And and the fact that I think what was interesting, fascinating to me is that at the end or toward the end of the book, after they left break bills, there is this sense that, okay, we know how to do magic, but so what? I mean, what 
you know, what does that mean in the real world? How is that a job? How am I going to make money? Um, and I thought that was a really interesting concept because I was a history major too, <laughs> and history and music. Um, you could spit on the street when I graduated from college and hit it out of work history major. And it was like, what do you do? You have this knowledge and it's cool, but how do I make money with it? How do I support myself? How do I raise a family with this? And that was a very interesting issue that was raised. Um, it'll be curious to see where the show goes with that as they follow the youngsters, you know, through these years at break bills. Right. Well, I want to talk about the the pilot episode, which I really thought was really excellent. Um, I mean, my my one issue I had with it is I felt that the characters were a little bit one dimensional. But I really thought the the climactic scene where the beast shows up was just one of the most riveting things I think I've ever seen committed to television. And it's funny, you know, I went to a party at Teresa DeLucci's apartment and I, you know, I, I actually showed the pilot to a couple of people because I got an early copy of it and I wanted people to watch the scene. And throughout the party, people were all just standing around talking. And then when that scene came on, just the whole room goes dead silent and everyone turns and is watching the screen and people are like, what the hell is this? You know, um, I don't know, Andrew, did, did you have kind of a similar reaction to the pilot? I was a little surprised at how um, quickly they introduced the beast. Um, I mean, retrospect, it makes sense, but it was, he was a character that was introduced after a good chunk of the book had gone through. Um, they did a pretty good job of actually adapting it. And I think what I, what took me a little longer to get used to at first was just how some of the characters looked. Um, uh, Quentin didn't look very much like I had thought he looked. Um, so it, it took a little while for me to get used to. And I was just a little surprised at how, how quickly they, they basically ran through the first quarter or third of the book. Um, right off the bat. I I agree that they introduced the beast really fast. I, I think that had to do with it just being a pilot and they just had to have some big wow thing in yeah. the pilot to sell the series and then to get people to keep watching it if they tune in for the first episode. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, and I think that that was, that was one of the things that they did a, they did a good job with. I thought the scene that he came was, he came in was, was really spectacular. Um, what I, what bothered me a little bit over the course of the show was, was how it, they didn't quite follow up on it. Um, it, it seems like they, they introduced the big bad and, and, you know, definitely show that magic has consequences, but then they sort of left it alone for a whole bunch of episodes. And there's a whole stretch in the middle of the season that they, they sort of just go through like the standalone episode thing. Uh, and I, I wasn't quite sure what, if, if I liked the show at that point. Um, but once they, once the show started getting darker, um, that's when it really started to pay off. And I, I can sort of, I, I just sort of wish that they had used that as a jumping point to get to the end of the season. Um, it, it seems, a, it just felt a little dis, dislocated to me. Yeah, I, I felt, I agree with you that after the pilot, which I really liked a lot, uh, there were a couple of, there's a stretch of episodes there that I thought were sort of uneven and I wasn't sure I was going to like the show. Um, but Melinda, it sounds like you pretty much liked it from the beginning, or did you have I any of these? It. I, I liked it from the beginning. I um, I thought it was just smart television that they brought in, that they, they hinted, they brought in the Beast, and then it seems to go quiet. And then there's the mystery of Alice's brother and and the horror of what happened to him. I mean, I think there was enough going, and I always had the sense, I felt like they did a very good job of kind of quietly reminding me that there was something out there in conversations between the headmaster and and um, the older Jane. 
you know, you got the sense that, you know, there was something wicked this way comes all the time. I thought that was present. And maybe it's because I hadn't read the books. And so I was able to just say, this is creepy and be waiting. And and so I was anticipating when the beast would come back um, and, and anticipating, you know, what, what happened to the brother and how that was going to pay off that I did feel was one thing that I felt like I would like to have seen that been tied back into the major overplot a little better. Um, And that would have been a change to the book, but it's a different medium. So I would have made that change. I would have tied um, the brother turning into a, I can't remember exactly what the phrase was. Niffin Niffin, um, would have been uh, something that, could have been tied back to the beast and back to Fillory in a way that, that wasn't. Um, but I, I had this sense of dread, um, through the entire thing and, you know, just low level and also watching Elliot, who is one of my favorite characters go from this sort of expansive, very almost amusing character and then begin to see how tortured he is and watch him slowly being destroyed while Quentin and um, is becoming much more of a grown-up. I mean, I just thought there was such interesting character arcs for these people as well um, that I, I was there from, they had me and I was, I was with it all the way to the end. One of the things that I was a little surprised at is how much I liked Penny in the oh. show. And I really didn't like him in the book at all. And it was just one of those things that I, I think it was a great casting choice. Oh, yeah. Um, and he, he was quick, really, really my favorite character. And I, I think that the show, honestly, the show would have been a little stronger with him in the lead, uh, if they, if they could find a way to do that. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Quentin is such a difficult character to write. I mean, the, the sort of fragile, insecure person is a tough person to make your hero. I was actually sort of glad to see it because, um, you know, to see that, that sort of character presented as a, as a leading man, which isn't all that common. But Penny was terrific because he, he actually in the book felt sort of cursory to me. He didn't seem to have much personality at all. Um, if anything, they just sort of, he was kind of a joke. And I like the fact he was this tough edged guy, um, who thought this was all bullshit, but, but began to see and became the man who really wanted to save the, the, the girl in the dungeon. Um, I, I, yeah, I thought that was just brilliant casting choice and he was really well written in the show. Right, because I read the book when it first came out, and I remembered Elliot and Quentin very vividly. But the other characters, like I'm, I wasn't even sure that they were in the book at all. Like Penny, is he is he completely different in the book? I mean, I don't re- I don't remember that character in the book. At no, all. he's he's still there. He's he's a little different. I mean, he's he's still pretty much the same character. Um, I remember him. I, I sort of imagine him being this skinny white punk kid with a like a purple or green mohawk. Um, so that I think the the casting choice. Definitely, it definitely changed him up quite a bit, um, in appearance. Um, but his attitude was always pretty much the same. And he, he and, he and Quentin were always sort of at odds and, um, not really, uh, they were, certainly weren't friends at all. Um, I think that this show really fleshed him out quite a bit more than the book did. How about the stuff about him being telepathic and transporting between worlds? Was that yeah, in the book that, at all? that was in there as well. Yeah, it was um, in there, yeah. I don't think he learned it at the school. I think when it was, it was sort of when he left and went off to, um, was it, he went off to Maine, I think. It's been a yeah. while since I've read the book, but he went off to Maine and he, that's when he sort of found some of the Fillory stuff. 
which, you know, all of that happening off stage was, you know, nuts making to me too. It's like, oh yeah, I, I bought it at a jumble sale. You know what? You got the button that took you to Fillory and it just happened to be at a junk sale and a yard sale. I mean, that was, I thought they handled that a lot better in the show. It, um, there was a direct line, a through line that was working. I mean, on the casting, I just want to say one thing that did make me crazy. And I have this complaint about a lot of modern shows. Everybody, the women all look alike except for Alice. It's very frustrating to me. It's like, does nobody have understand the concept of hair dye? I mean, um, because there were times when I could not tell the difference it, I mean, Julia eventually became, you know, very clear because she's such an integral character and such a powerful character. But Margot and some of the others, um, you know. I mean, did you think it was just a matter of their looks or do you think that the, the characters should have had more uh, individuated personalities or did what did you think of that aspect of it? I think in. I think they weren't as well drawn as the men. I, I think there were, you know, similarities. Um between Katie and the, the girl who got thrown out of school. Um, and, and it just took me a while to start to, to pull them apart and realize that they had different, different personalities. I mean, Alice, Alice is the female version of Quentin and she's, you know, she really did stand out and not just because she was blonde, but because she, you know, has a very different personality from some of the other women. And Margot had, you know, obviously a very, you know, the, the, the queen of the damned out there with, with the hedge witches. Uh, I think you have the names a little. I've got the long right. Okay. Which one? All right. Margo is not the, which one is no, the Mar Mar witch? Margo is um, Elliot's, like the, the one he kind of pals around with. And, and Katie is. Katie is the one who's dating Penny. She's like the one whose mom right, got in and, trouble. And then who had to leave break bills because she, yeah. And who's the redhead who got Julia drawn into all of this? I don't remember her name. Yeah, I'm actually blanking yeah. on her name. See, I, this is the problem. I mean, we're all sort of going, wait a minute. I mean, I'm trying to figure all of you out. But the fact I'm having so much trouble where the men are very clear. Hmm. Well, so I was saying that, you know, the early episodes were kind of a mixed bag for me. But when they went to Break Bill South, when they went to Antarctica, uh, I just thought that episode was terrific. And that's where the show really, really caught me. And I was pretty much in, you know, I was pretty much along for the ride from that point on. Um, I don't know, Andrew, what did you think of that episode? Did you feel the same way about that? That one was an interesting one just because it, 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 it was one of the ones that sort of, it seemed like it was the last one that I felt that came out of right, like stage right. And, um, just sort of appeared. They didn't really set it up very well. I thought, um, it, and it was sort of like all the episodes before it, they were all sort of episode of the week. You know, this is the problem that we're going to do. Um, and it wasn't until they got to the, um, Christopher Plover residence that I really, that was the one that really blew me away because it really, uh, put a lot, all the little bits and pieces of the show into context. It's, it, they talked a little, why Villery was important, why really what, what the beast was and that, you know, that there was some horrible things that had happened. Um, but I, the, and the weird thing is, is, is that the, the Breakbill South episode was really a, a pivotal moment in the books. So it was weird just to see that it wasn't, I don't know. I, I felt that it wasn't as important this time around. That, that could just be I, you though. No, I think that's fair. I think in the books, that's actually one of the, one of the more interesting moments. And he spends more time. 
I think they could have I, I think they could have done another episode or half an episode at Break Bill South. Um, and, and also the, the professor, the banished professor down there was such a fascinating character. Um, you know, I liked that a great deal, but I, I think it was the going to Plover's house that made me just, I mean, I had liked the show, but as a, as somebody who's done a lot of television writing and has done a lot of adaptations, I was just bouncing up and down going, this is genius because in the book, it is literally a throwaway line from Jane <laughs> toward the end of the book where she says, oh, yeah, and by the way, you know, this famous author, you know, molested my brother. And it's just a throwaway. And this is after you have found out who the beast actually is, et cetera, et cetera. And they built an entire episode out of one line. And it was a really good episode. It was a very creepy ghost story. Um and and worked really well for me. And watching Quentin's devastation, that was a big character turning point too. Um, so I just thought that was uh, just a marvelous episode and an example of what what good adaptation is and how great television can be. I mean, how you can take something into a new medium and do it in this really innovative way. Something I just I just remembered is just to go back to the uh, Breakbill South episode is that there there's a connection to. Alice's brother mm-hmm. with that professor and they, they never followed up on that. They that, never, that, yeah, they dropped the ball. Yeah. Uh, so the, in the books, the professor at break bill South was uh, the one who had, um, he, he was connected to uh, her brother's, her brother turning into a Niffin. Um, I, I can't remember if he had, if he was the one that had. Um, he had slept with a young woman who changed her looks, who tried to become more beautiful. Oh, she oh, was in oh. love with this professor. And it's and then Alice's brother tried to help her and was destroyed as a result. They fixed her he was and then the professor was banished. So yeah, and they didn't um that wasn't played up effectively, I didn't think. Yeah, and I, I think we've been at least for, for me personally, I, I've been spoiled by another sci-fi show, The Expanse, when it comes to adapting a book, um, and and sort of keeping their eye on the larger story as it unfolds. So um, I, that show I, I thought was a really good example of how how you take a larger plot and you you basically build each episode towards that larger goal. It's very strategic. The magicians I didn't took a different track. They didn't do that. It felt like there was a lot more dead time, and I, I think that they sort of missed missed an opportunity there. That's interesting because I didn't I didn't have that reaction. I mean, I thought the the episodes that obviously weren't working as well for you guys as they did for me. I thought they were very they were very character oriented. I became more and more involved with these people because I had a sense of them because it wasn't all servicing the plot. Um, and and so they they had me. I was I was there. I, I I cared about Alice and her her dysfunctional family and and Quentin, you know, and his sense of lack of self worth. And I, you know, it worked for me that I didn't, you know, it didn't feel like everything was designed toward you know this 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 big finale. And and they kept Fillory front and center by making fun of poor Quentin and his obsession <laughs> with, with Fillory and this world. Um, and, and so, you know, but I, I kind of read for characters and I watch for characters. I, you know, I need to fall in love with the people 
um, or dislike them horribly, but still be fascinated with them. And I thought they, they handled that for me very well. And I, I read for plot and I, I like the larger <laughs> story. So I think that's probably why we're, we're at sort of coming that this from opposite ends. And it's weird because I'm the plot person. I mean, I do, <laughs> you know, extensive structure. Structure is, is incredibly valuable, but I just thought this was a very good balance, this show between servicing the plot, the structure, the overall structure and giving me an insight into the people. Well, I really liked Melinda. Some of the things you mentioned, like Alice's family, I thought was great. But I think those th things really happened after the Break Bill South episode. And the, the, the sort of episodes two through four or five, whatever it was, they felt to me like they were trying to, they were, they were, they were like, the tone was a little inconsistent to me where some scenes were funny and then some weren't and, and stuff like that. But then also it seemed like they were kind of overstuffed, like the, like in the second episode, like suddenly there's this magical amulet and, um, Quentin and Penny are shooting spells at each other. And it just seems like all that was happening too fast and too randomly. And that's why I really liked the Break Bill South episode for me is because that's when, to me, the show kind of calmed down a little bit and felt a little more focused and serious and just sort of like slowed down and breathed a little bit more. And and I felt like they had slowed down significantly from the book because um, I felt like the book felt rushed. So, you know, and again, maybe it's because I'm coming at it from having not read the book first. Um you know, I think there was Julia's desperation and what was happening to Julia, I think, kept me focused on how truly dangerous this is. Um, and so I think that move, because apparently isn't, I, I gather from people who've read more of the books, that Julia's story comes out much more in the second volume than it does in the first. Is that correct? Yeah, and her... Her honestly, her story I thought was the stronger of of all of them, um, especially when you compare her to Quentin. Um, and and in the second book, her story alternates with Quentin's. Uh, so his is sort of in the present, and hers goes back to the past. And then they they sort of catch up with one another. Um, there, there's no way they could have done they could have held it off for the second season because then it would have been just yeah. awkward. Um, so they basically took the structure of of the second book and put it in the first in the first season, which I really liked because that was yeah. a, that was a really great thing. Um, and, um, I, I always thought that what Grossman did with the, with the second book was a lot was, he was dealing with a lot more interesting stuff than what we saw in the first book. So it, you, you go to break bills and it's this nice orderly or sort of orderly magical Academy. And they, you know, they go and le they learn their spells and then he goes and shows them, he shows us that, well, that's, that's one version of this. And, this, this other messier type of magic. And I thought that the type of stuff that they were, they were searching for, um, was more interesting and more horrifying and, um, than what they had found in the first book. I'll just throw in that I've only read the first book, so I can't, okay. I can't add anything to that. So Julia's story in the, in the first season is basically the is it basically parallels with, um, what you see in, in the second, her, her version in the second, in the second, um, book. I, I do think that they, they had, um, wasted some time, uh, with the first couple of episodes with her because she went and, uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I felt that they, they, it felt like they're sort of spinning their wheels for a little while while they tried to figure out what to do with them. Um, and if they had stuck with the books a bit more, they might have, uh, the, the books, it, it, Basically, in, in the books, Julia goes and she goes and she levels up 
over and over again. And then in the TV show, she levels up and then she gets it all re, re erased and then she goes into rehab and then she goes and finds her new friends and goes from there. And I, I, they, that sort of happens in the book, but it, I thought the book handled a little bit better. All right. So let's, let's go back to the, the Christopher Plover house for a second. Cause I wanted to say something about that. Cause I think we all really liked that episode, right? I think we all said, right. But I just wonder, like, since we're all so into books and we've all probably had more experiences meeting authors that, you know, we love their books, then you meet the author and the author turns out to be a, a disappointing human being. I wonder if that struck us particularly as as opposed to just the average viewer. Well, I, I read the books before I was really involved in the science fiction world. Um, but I, I thought it was I thought it was a really interesting way to to sort of twist it. Because Quentin loved this world and he was really, you know, he, he was really into, uh, the Fillory books and just to have that taken away from him. I, I thought what was really effective was, it was in, in the books. They, they basically said, yeah, the, you know, the, the Fillory and Further books are there, but they're basically a child's memory of the world. And it's not, it's just, it's this whitewashed and, and rose colored vision and it's not really. You know, it, it's not an accurate portrayal of the world. So I thought, I thought that was really effective. And I, I really liked how Grossman played with that. And, you know, the same thing goes to the, to the author or the fictional author here is, you know, that, you know, you have this, this biography built up about him. And then it's, you know, sort of horribly dashed when you learn the truth. And I, and, you know, in, in some cases, there's some real world, um, parallels to this. I mean, um, there's some, some allegations about Marion Zimmer Bradley. Yeah. You know, and it's, uh, I'm sure there's others. So, I mean, it's, it's not an uh, unheard of thing. Yeah. I mean, is there anything else you wanted to say, Melinda, about the Christopher Plover house? No, I, I just, again, I, you know, I guess because I've been writing for longer than I want to mention, um, I, I know that experience. So that didn't strike me as much as just, just how clever it was to take something so small and make it into such a, a beautiful fleshed out episode um, and, and the effect on the characters. And, and that was, that was what really worked for me. And also they did a nice, um, they did a nice job of, of suggesting and letting you take, make the conclusion that it was going to be Christopher and not Martin um, and I thought that, that I thought that worked very well. Now, but like I said, by that point, I had read it. But again, I don't mind spoilers. I'm a person who loves to go to a movie knowing what's going to happen to see how well they do it, um, how well the structure works, how well the links work. So, you know, I was fine with that. And then I, you know, I was curious: have they changed the book, or are they doing a head fake? They did a fake, and I thought they did a pretty good job of it. One of the things I really liked about that episode was also that they got to play with genre a little bit. So in the middle of this sort of epic fantasy or urban fantasy, uh, show, you have this ghost story, mm-hmm. which is, you know, and it, it felt very, tra- like a very traditional sort of ghost story to me. And I really liked that. It was just a, it was a nice change from how they'd done things. And I, I really hope that they do that with future episodes. They get to play a little bit more with some of the other tropes that you see in fantasy. So I guess once, once we go to Fillory, we'll have the chance to do some epic fantasy stuff, but right. you know, maybe, maybe there's some other, some other fantasy tropes that have, have surfaced in literature that'd be really fun to play with and just bring to the TV screen. 
Well, I have to say, one of the things I was deeply relieved to see is I, when I was reading the book and they go to Fillory and then there's the scene at the end with all the animals, I thought, this is going to be really hard to pull off and probably embarrassing if they try. And fortunately, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't go there um, because cute talking animals, I was like, this show had been so felt so grounded to me that if we were going to have cute talking animals, I was afraid I was going to go, oh, no. And they didn't. They just have a th one line out of Elliot saying, well, I was just hit doing shots with a bulldog. That's it. It's funny because they initially they, you know, in the book, it's a bear. And initially they were planning to get a bear, but they were filming in the winter. And so the trainer said the bear would be hibernating and there was no way they could get it to do anything. <laughs> Really? Yeah, and so that bulldog, it just belongs to somebody on the crew, and it was like their mascot, and so they just decided to put it in the show. Oh, that's great. But yes, thank thankfully, I, I, I wasn't treated to whole scenes of people sitting and talking to cute animals, because I think it would have been ugly. <laughs> I really do. One of the fun things about Chris, no, fun thing about Christopher Plummer, but uh, I guess I had to plug something I wrote for io9 a while back. Um, I wrote a I read a column on science fiction history for Kirkus, and as I, I, I had gone back to reread the the magicians' books again, and I was like, you know, it would be really funny to do like a fake uh, biography of Homer. <laughs> and so I went and I, I went and actually I, I emailed Love Grossman and I said, hey, you know, I want to do this thing, and do you have any objection if I if I bring it somewhere? And he said, no, go ahead. And, and I had um, um, so I basically wrote it up. It's it's on io9 now. It's um, it's called the biography of Christopher Plover from Love Grossman's Magicians. And it's, it's basically written as this sort of, I guess, it, I guess it's sort of fan fiction, but, uh, it's this tongue in cheek biography of Christopher Plover. Um, and it, I, I was able to pull in some information from the other science, the history columns that I'd written, um, and sort of pull him into like this genre history that we have. And, um, it was, it was a lot of fun to write and, and, Grossman had a couple of uh, comments for it. He said, you know, no, just change this little detail here and there. And it, it doesn't quite line up with the TV show, but it's just a, um, it, it does have the creepy parts of, of Plubber implicated <laughs> in it. Um, and it's basically written as though it's, it's sort of rumor, but obviously we know it's true. So it, it was fun to write. <laughs> well, that kind of makes me think of Lev's, um, cameo in episode two. Yeah. Where he's like a, a fillery scholar. You, you, you see him uh, on TV as a fillery scholar. Yeah. Um, I was going to say too about Plover is there, there's the, there's a the line in that episode where he says, in order to do this kind of spell, I'd have to have six fingers. Mm -hmm. yep. And then you think about how the beast does have six fingers. And there's just, there's just something really, really creepy about that idea of adding an extra finger. And then that unlocks this whole new realm of dark magic. I really like that. Yeah. And it's just this, it's this unnaturalness to it. Um, and the other thing, I mean, what I really liked about in the finale was when they, when they talk about how he goes to this well and it's, he re he's replacing himself little by little until there's nothing left that's he really human. Um, that was really a, a neat detail. And I really hope that they, I wish that they had been able to play it up a little bit more. I, I, I almost wish that we had, we get an episode that from his point of view and basically that, that flashes back and sort of catches us up with him. Uh, although that would be, creepy as hell but um <laughs> i i really want to see more of that and i and i, I it was one of those instances where i it, it was rushed through so quickly i that i just don't think that we had enough time to really have it all sink in um i think that's sort of the problem with some of the sci-fi shows right now is that they're all like 
10 to 13 episodes. They have to pack a lot in in order to get the season, um, all the story in for the season. So um, I, I kind of wish that they had a little bit more time to, to play with it. Uh, I was also going to say about the, just speaking of the six fingers, I thought all the, the hand gestures they did were just, were really effective. I mean, I, I totally believe that they were doing magic and I don't know how much, what kind of training they did to do those hand gestures or something, but I thought it was really, really cool. I thought they were super awkward. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. It, it, it just looked. Uh, Melinda, you're going to have to be our tiebreaker here. <laughs> I, I, I thought it looked goofy. The problem was I didn't know what else they could do. I mean, in the books, it's clearly all done with hand gestures, and you really don't want to go to wands. You know, been there, done that with Harry Potter. I'm not sure what what the solution is. I, I'm kind of coming down a little on Andrew's side. And there were moments when, especially when they would do these shots, you know, these close-ups on Quentin's face, and he's concentrating like crazy, and then his fingers are doing all this weird stuff, and it was a little bit awkward um but i don't know what else you use i mean you know i i was trying to think how how you would handle that without without it looking stupid or going back to sort of wells that have already been drunk from a lot of times and i don't have a very good answer i really okay but in the first episode when the beast comes through the mirror and he's doing the hand gestures that was creepy as hell no am i the only one i think i was so grossed out by the moths that I didn't even <laughs> notice that. I'm going to have to rewatch that, that first episode. Um, I mean, there's something terrifying about moths and, and the way that was handled. I mean, every time I saw one flit across the screen, I would go, Oh no. Oh no. Oh God. <laughs> I mean, they really, they really made that horrifying and very subtle. Um, and so I, I didn't notice the hand gestures. I was just watching all the moths. And again, that's another change from the book because in the book he's holding a branch in front of his face. Yeah, or isn't there like a, a tree floating in front of his face? That's how I remember it. Sort of like a Magritte painting. I, I just know, you know, he he, he carries, he holds a branch. There's a branch in front of his face. And, you know, that's okay. But the moths were just, oh, God, <laughs> make your skin crawl creepy. Um, all right. The other thing I was going to bring up is that uh, you guys mentioned how uh, Quentin is this big fantasy fan. And did anyone else feel like Quentin should have pushed back against Penny more when Penny was making fun of fantasy? I really wanted him to to point out some of the many virtues that fantasy literature has. <laughs> I think he would have just come off a little more whiny than he actually was. That you know, more whiny than he is. Um, I I did like. I, I actually that that scene I thought was really funny is is, uh, but I, I did like how meta the show got at points and like how they would like they were talking about Dungeons and Dragons and um you know Harry Potter and things like that. Oh, and one of my favorite moments. I mean, one of the one of the scenes that just is when Penny is is trapped and he's trying to get a message to Quentin and he invades Quentin's dream. <laughs> Yeah, where Quentin is Indiana Jones, and and one of the girls is Daenerys from Game of Thrones, and the and he's he's like, or and, and I guess Princess Leia, and you know, and and he's like, okay, you are like the nerd king, you know. <laughs> I thought that was just a gorgeous moment, um, and and it was lovingly done. I mean, I didn't as as a big major geek who's loved all this stuff my whole life, I didn't feel disrespected by it i thought it was just a great moment and and um 
and it says in the and I felt like that was actually a moment where the two men began to have an understanding of each other and start to like each other a little better. Well, because because at the end, Penny does say something like, "On second thought, I think you might be some kind of genius or something like that." Yes, yes. I, I feel like, you know, Quentin has gone from just this totally useless, whiny person. I mean, the fact that he is telling us that finale, at first I wasn't sure I liked it. And then I went, I think this works beautifully. Um, that, you know, here I thought I'd be the king of Fillory. And guess what? No. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of those things. And he, he starts to become um, a man, an adult. And I saw, started to see a change between he and Penny. And they are growing while Elliot, who seemed so confident and so profoundly in control in the beginning, Elliot is just reduced to a shell by the end. I mean, there's this lovely passage of the characters moving in different directions. Not to get all literary, you know, um, English lit kind of thing, but I, I just thought that was really well done. <laughs> Okay, so let's see. So, so Melinda, you really liked this show, and Andrew, how how, how would you characterize your response to the show overall? Lukewarm. Um, I think it has promise. I think that I it's a good start, and I think that once they started going dark, um, it got a lot better. So it took me a little while, a little longer to get up to get on on board with it. But I, once I, I was on board, I really liked it. And I'm, I'm really eager to see what they do with the second season. Um, because it looks like they're going to be changing some things up quite a bit. Um, especially with that, that scene with Julia, um, you know, trying to get the, the, uh, Martin to do something for her. Um, uh, I'm really interested to see where they go with that. I think now they've gotten all the characters, they've gotten the voices. They've, they've figured out who they are. And, and I think now they're in a much better place to really, uh, hit the ground running with season two. Well, yeah, because I mean, because the show has some, it's like 69% or something on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I would have given it more than that, but I don't know. Melinda, why do you think that you seem to have liked this show more than kind of the average person? I think it was a combination of things. It was, uh, I, I think it has gorgeous production values. Um, it, you know, it's beautiful to watch. I thought overall the casting was very good, particularly with the men. Um, and I'm, I'm fascinated. I don't know all the answers and I want to know more. And so it wants, it makes me want to come back. It makes me really disappointed that I have to wait all the way to January of 2017 to see more episodes and to find out what happens and what Julia is up to and, what will Quentin and and um, Penny do? I mean, all of these questions. How does Margot figure into this? Not Margot, um, <laughs> redhead girl, the girl, girl with hedge witches. Um, I'm assuming that she will come back um, because she murdered Mark, Katie, Margot, one of their mothers. Um, so there's all of this, these questions that I have that have me intrigued enough that I'm really looking forward to it. And I think, again, at first I wasn't sure about Quentin, but I I was sort of delighted to see a very different model for a leading man. I think it's a pleasant change. I mean, I'm getting a little bit tired of the guys who use the razors that give them the Yasser Arafat look and, uh, you know, who are all tough and macho. And, and there's something 
compelling about seeing people that feel more real to me than your average heroes in television shows. The show just worked for me um, on on so many levels. And uh, I, I just found it emotionally very satisfying. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about the finale. Um, you know, you mentioned this is where you actually see Fillory for the most part. And then, of course, there's the just really, really shocking uh, ending. I, I was totally, I was not expecting that at all. I was totally just shocked by that ending. Um, which, which ending? But, uh, the part where Julia is assaulted? Or? Yeah, yeah, where, where her... Um, a memory is restored and you, yeah. you see what act, the horrible thing that actually happened to her. Um, I don't know. So, so Melinda, what did you think of the, of that aspect of the story? I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was lovely. I mean, lovely in a, in a horrifying way. I don't mean that. I just thought they did a really good job because I didn't see that coming. I was hoping they weren't going to give us the traditional and then they take the knife and they kill the evil thing. And Fillory is restored and, Everything is sweetness and light. And instead they went to some strange, very dark place. And the moment, I mean, cause they keep setting it up. People keep saying, there's a, there's a shade. There's a, you know, a veil on your memory. Um, and I, I wondered about it. And then they, they paid it off at the end beautifully when, when, um, uh, Ember, you know, the God removes it there. If you can thank me later, you know, and what it leads to is this horrific outcome. Um, and, you know, it also, I mean, she really is such a troubled figure because from the beginning, she just gets in deeper and deeper. Every choice she makes leads her into greater darkness. And I just thought that that I never thought they would go as dark as they did. Um, I don't know if that was in the books or not, but wow, you know, that was um, that was quite powerful. Yeah, that's that's what. That whole sequence is right out of the books, and I, I was a little surprised that they they went there, um, especially for primetime television show. But um, and it was also one of those instances where a lot of um, readers, I've readers I've spoken with, have really been disturbed by that um, they went to that that length. Um, I interviewed Lev Grossman a while back when he came up to Vermont for at a, a local bookstore here and, and had to talk. Or we did an interview with him and, um, I, I, I asked him about that and he, he basically said that, well, it's, it's a, um, um, he was drawn from a lot of really deep literary and mythological things. Um, and, and, um, it, it was, it was a very shocking scene and I was, um, I'm still not quite sure what I think about it. I, 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 yeah. Well, I, I, I watched that Andrew, your interview with him and I thought what he, his response was really interesting because he said that, yeah, there's this long tradition in mythology, like Greek mythology, of gods raping mortal women, and how it's just normalized. It's just treated as if, like, oh yeah, that's the kind of thing gods would do. And that he wanted to to push back against that and and have that kind of thing happen in his story and show it as the horror uh, and the violation that it actually would be. And well, one of the one of the main things that a, a lot of female readers have pointed out, and I, I think correctly, is that he really. Uh, his male characters never face the same consequences as the female ones do. And he, he, there's really this disparity between them. And I, I think Julia's story was one, uh, it, it's present in the first book, but the second book, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit darker, um, or quite a bit darker, I should say. So I, I don't know. 
I, 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 I thought his, his response to it was, I, I was satisfied by it, but I, I know of some people who, who heard it and they were like, well, I, I'm not really, I don't really buy it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it, it's the old, you know, it, it, I ha- since I haven't read more of the books and don't know where they're going in the second season, you know, is it woman is temptress, woman is Eve, woman who always, you know, opens up Pandora's box and mm-hmm. all of those different things? You know, I think they could take, they'll take the curse off it if she has agency. Um, and, and if she manages to turn this around where she, destroys you know her the person the god who assaulted her and also manages to take care of martin if if she ends up getting rescued by quentin and penny at all then then that could be problematic you know then we yeah. are going back into very old sexist tropes there's a real opportunity here for the show to really improve on the books i think because they left the the fox alive and i just how they played out that scene, I I have a feeling that he'll be back, and that he. I'm, I'm what I really hope that they'll do is that he will be sort of the the big villain. I hope that they'll get rid of they'll they'll sort of take care of Martin at some point, and then that he will become another villain that they'll have to take care of because Martin is just this this scared kid who's got a lot of power and is sort of monstrous now. Then they do play with in the books they do play with gods later on, um, and it would be interesting to see them take a slightly different track and just have to go after this one specific God. Yeah, that would be, so, yeah. Uh, who, who knows? Obviously maybe, maybe a year, a year from now we can go back and, um, <laughs> we'll be talking stock, about but, that. Yeah. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. I, I, if I was, if I was to bet, I would bet that he's going to come. He, we will definitely see him again. Yeah, that's certainly what I would imagine. And I heard John McNamara, who's sort of the co writer say that they had kind of sketched out, I think it was five seasons of this show. And considering that this one season covered like most of what I remember from the first book, and then as you're saying, a lot of stuff from the second book, I wonder how much they're planning to um, branch out from what's in the actual books to if they're if they're if they have that many seasons of television in mind. I think they're definitely going to diverge at some point because the books have a very concrete ending, and I mean the first book has a the first book has sort of had an open ending. The second book was a little bit. It was quite a bit less open ended, and then the um, the third book is very much a concrete stop. So I don't, I, they definitely can't do the model of adapt each book for each season, um, and they couldn't do that with this show anyway. I mean, also if you look at this first season in the books, they go through however many years their break bills for. Yeah, I guess they're four yeah. years at Breaksville, and then they graduate, and then they're all living in an apartment in Manhattan before they go off to Fillory. I mean, years have passed in that first book, and the impression I have from the show is that we're still they're still in their first year um, at, well, they, at Breakbills. They were approaching the the college as though it was like a graduate school rather than yeah, like rather than college because they didn't want it to be high school kids, which I thought was also a good choice. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that that. I'll, I'll be interested to see if, you know, after all these things that happened to them, you know, in Fillory, if they will go back to school or if break bills will just no longer be a thing. But uh, th- th- that'll be interesting to see how they resolve that. You know, I think they're going to have to. I mean, I think break bills and break bills south have to be a touchstone. I, th- I think if they lose that, I, I think we're not as grounded as we would have been. And I also found the headmaster who diverged significantly from the headmaster in the books. Um, I'm interested in that character. 
I mean, he does give Quentin the warning. This is your last chance, you know. We've had this conversation 46 times before, um, <laughs> which was it was a very nice, you know, moment. Um, so I'm kind of hoping they do keep break bills because I think they, they need that to as a sort of return point, the, the place we go back to. I, I agree with you about the Dean being a terrific character. Uh, just the part I, I was, it cracked me up so much where he, he was talking about Groundhog Day and he's like, I still haven't watched it. It's become a point of pride for me now. <laughs> yeah. um, but even just the scene where he, he says, you know, I taught myself magic when I was four years old. I'll do it again very calmly. Mm-hmm. And then you see when he's in private, how he's losing his temper. I thought that was just such an interesting character moment. Right. And I'm sorry we lost Jane as quickly as we did. I mean, that was um, that was an, an interesting because we see her at various ages, and that was that was just another thing. I just I don't know. The show really worked for me on so many levels, <laughs> and, um, and I was so intrigued by it. Does anyone else question? I have the same issue with Harry Potter, but why the professors don't seem to do more to help the students save the world? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I know, because it was one of the things that drove me mad in Harry Potter. It's like, would you just go tell Dumbledore that, you know, these problems are happening? Um, you know, I, but they did seem to imply, the headmaster did seem to imply that Quentin is different. He's not the best magician, but there's something about him. And the beasts seem fascinated with him, too. So clearly, you know, Maybe there was a reason, and maybe that will become... I, I think that's something they need to answer, because they hinted at it very strongly, that Quentin is a fairly unique figure, and why is that? Right, like, like why is it a secret that Fillory is a real place, and that Martin Chatwin became the Beast and stuff like that? Like, Andrew, I don't know. Is there, any, is there, an ex, is there ever an explanation for that? Why Martin became the Beast? No, why, why the professors keep it secret from the students that that has happened? Oh, um... I'm trying to think. I, I can't think of a reason, but that doesn't mean I'm just not remembering it. I guess I should probably read the other books. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, well, he doesn't show up in the other books, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't remember why, even in the books the the professors were pretty detached. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And that, that's the thing where it just felt like in the book, it felt very cursory that for the, the years at break bills, cause I, I wanted a little better sense of some of those professors, which is why I'm kind of hoping they keep break bills around um, and give us more insight into you know, how do you end up a professor? Is that the only way you can make a living if you're a magician is to end up teaching at one of the colleges? And they indicate there are colleges all over the world. Break bills isn't the only one. Yeah, and Quentin actually becomes a professor in the third book for a little while. Oh, Okay. Not the, 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 hopefully that's not too much of a spoiler. But. No, I, like I said, I don't care. I love spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, because I, you know, I just read that, you know, the books cover this, the, like Quentin and so on from the ages of 17 through 35 or something. So obviously they're not going to be able to do that. So they're going to have to make major changes to compress that sort of character growth and those kinds of things. And I, I totally agree with Melinda that they should keep break bills in as a, as the touchstone. I think, I think they have to do that. But what you're saying, Melinda, though, about what do you do after break bills makes me think, of course, of um, Alice's parents. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just such a great scene or a great sequence in the show uh, where you see the sort of aimlessness of 
of the break bills graduates who have all this power but no no quest right yeah, yeah. no purpose um and it felt like um lev grossman was talking about that even when when the kids graduate in the book in the first book and they're all living this rather aimless life in manhattan um it 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 was a real interesting look at at youth and what do you do with it um what does education ultimately mean? What's my purpose? I mean, that was that was one of the things I really did like about the the book. Um, I, like I said, I was a little disappointed in the structure, but I thought the questions it it rang very true about what it's like to be twenty years old or twenty one years old and be facing these choices. Um, and yeah, I mean, magic is how do you make it feel real, and and how does it function in the world? I mean, if magic were real. Why aren't they doing something? I mean, if you look at Harry Potter, they can grow fabulous gardens. Well, why is there mass starvation? You know, why aren't the magicians, you know, the wizards and witches doing something? Um, it does seem like a very selfish society. Um, and I wonder if they're going to get into that in any way. Well, you could say, why, how, why aren't we in the first world doing anything? To help the third world, right? Like, don't we have sort of a similar relationship to a lot of people in the world as magicians would have would have to us? Well, yeah, I, this is magic. This is magic. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It, it's it's not easy to take drought stricken areas, but we have people. You know, it, if if our fantasy world exists, we have people who can affect the weather, who can make it rain, who can make plants grow. You know, we're we're faced with the limitations of what can actually be done. You know, yes, we could do more, but it does seem like you always run up against the problem that if magic is real, why is it everybody who is a magic user rich and gorgeous, you know, um, and and happy or doing something for the world? I mean, that's. Well, no, but because because if you use a spell to try to make yourself pretty, well, it, it, bad things this, happen. Bad things happen in this world, but <laughs> but Hermione fixes her nose in Harry Potter or her teeth or something. I guess her teeth. Yeah, so, it's teeth, yeah. yeah, you know, it does something. Everybody takes a slightly different tact, but you always run up against the why aren't they doing more? You know, if they if this is real, what? Where is it present in the world, and how could it be present in the world? So. But I, I have a feeling this show might actually kind of go there because it does feel very modern the way Andrew said. Because hmm. I kind of thought what The Magicians was about to me was how nothing's ever going to make you happy in a way. I mean, you know, that I, <laughs> like we sort of go through life thinking, oh, if I just sell a novel or, you know, yeah. become rich or famous, so then I'll be happy. And, and I don't think any of those external things ever really make you happy. And this is saying, you know, you could even go to wizard school. You could go to a magical kingdom. You'd you still be you. You'd king. still have. I'm sorry. You could become the king of Fillory. Yeah, yeah, you could become the king of Fillory. Uh, you'd still have, you know, if if there's nothing inside you making you happy, nothing outside of you, however like incredible it might seem, is ever going to do that for you. I, I agree with that completely. Uh, certainly, it was very clear in the books that the book that that was you know what he was talking about. Um, all right, cool. So, uh, so Andrew, anything else you're hoping to see in season two? Um, well, I hope I hope we'll get some of the material that we saw in, in book two because there's despite the fact that they got um, Julia's story, there's still another half of the book that they haven't covered yet, and it takes place chronologically after this book. So hopefully they'll, they'll at least cover some of that 
we'll get out into the world a little bit more. We'll see some more fillery. We'll see some more of Earth. Um, I hope that they will tighten up the story a little bit and just make it um, take take in some of the lessons that they might have learned from the first season and just sort of tighten everything up from beginning to end. Uh, that'll make me really happy. Uh, but yeah. All right, cool. And so, Melinda, any other uh, requests or or advice for the the showrunners? I mean, um, tie back into to the brother. That would be one thing I would say. You know, the law, Alice's lost brother. I think that needs to be paid off in some way that hasn't been. Um, and I want to know what's going on with the hedge witches. Um, yeah, because I think that's a that's a thread that needs to be pick back up and crochet back in again. All right, cool. So, yeah, so uh, hope we see all that in season two. And I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Andrew Liptak and Melinda Snodgrass. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Andrew Liptak and to Melinda Snodgrass for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.